This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bornilsen. I'm an associate professor of social anthropology in Oslo and also the coordinator of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. I am joined today by Alf Nielsen, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Pretoria in South Africa and a scholar of Indian democracy and politics. Alf Nielsen is also a longtime associate of our Norwegian Network for Asian Studies and has been with us in Oslo quite often. Today, he joins us for a talk about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Indian society and the economy, and particularly on India's poor and marginalized groups. Welcome, Alf, and thank you for taking the time to join us from Pretoria. Thank you, Kenneth. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's now more or less precisely 10 months since India's Prime Minister Modi announced a nationwide lockdown that happened on the 24th of March 2020. This lockdown has been described as one of the strictest in the world. The Indian population was given only four hours to prepare for this unprecedented disruption of everyday life. So Alf, could you take us back to March of last year and remind us precisely of what happened during these early days and weeks of India's lockdown? Yeah, so I think it's important to note how late March 2020 demarcated a kind of radical shift in government discourse about the pandemic that was beginning to unfold on a world stage and how it was to be handled. What I mean by that is even when we saw the initial cases of people testing positive for COVID-19 in India after having returned, in fact, from Wuhan in China, the government was insisting that this would not really be much of a problem. Not much attention was given to how one could prepare for a pandemic in terms of ramping up testing facilities, in terms of putting in place PPE equipment for health personnel and so on and so forth. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, in late March, Prime Minister Modi appears on TV, imposes a three-week lockdown and gives people, as you mentioned, four hours to prepare for this unprecedented disruption of everyday life. And one of the most dramatic things, I think, that happened in the immediate aftermath of the imposition of the lockdown was, of course, the more or less complete cessation of economic life. And that, in turn, resulted in a massive exodus of migrant workers from Indian cities back to the countryside where they originally hailed from. And all of this produced a humanitarian disaster, which even caught the world's attention. I say even because it's not all that often that ongoings in India captures the attention of Western media, but this of course did. We also saw at this point a ramping up of the authoritarian politics of the Modi government. So anyone who's been following India since 2014 and since Modi took power will know that being at the center in India is an unthankful task because you find yourself at the receding end of coercion at the hands of the government and often also violent reprisal by the government supporters. And what we saw, of course, was that the Modi government used the lockdown and the pandemic almost immediately to quell the large protests against anti-Muslim citizenship laws that had been introduced in late 2019. And after that, pursuing a campaign, if you will, of repression against leading activists. Now, while all of this was going on, 
under the cover of an extremely strict lockdown, India became a pandemic epicenter at a global level, comparing, if you will, with uh, the United States and Brazil, both in terms of uh, the spread of the virus and basically in terms of how poorly it was handled. And we still see that today, even though India's uh, curve of infections has been going down, according to official numbers. I just checked the numbers this morning and India has now had 10 and a half million cases of COVID or people who have tested positive for the COVID-19 virus. On the 13th of January, the country saw 16,000 new cases, which is of course lower than when the pandemic wave was at its peak, but nevertheless substantial. And altogether, there have been some 152,000 deaths in the period that has unfolded since late March of last year. And I think we also need to, to bear in mind when we look at those numbers that India has had very low testing rates, which means that what we're talking about here are very likely to be conservative estimates, if not underestimates of the severity, if you will, of the coronavirus. So in short, a draconian lockdown was imposed. It caused a humanitarian disaster. It opened up even further, if you will, the floodgates of authoritarianism in Indian politics. And it did very little to address the problem at hand, which is, of course, a public health emergency and a public health disaster. You mentioned this, the relatively poor handling of the pandemic during the well, maybe especially the early phases, coming close to India, maybe squandering what was a window of opportunity they had to, for example, as you mentioned, ramp up the, the public health system, getting enough good enough test facilities in place. In your view, why didn't the government manage to make better use of this window of opportunity that the draconian lockdown, after all, did give them? Well, I think that's a very good question. And it's one that gives us pause to reflect on much of what is particular about the Indian political order under prime ministership of, of Narendra Modi. So when the lockdown was imposed, Indian health experts basically pointed out that the country had three weeks at their disposal to expand and to strengthen the medical infrastructure in the country. That did not happen at all. And that is what's so galling, if you will, about the scenario. Less than 0.04% of India's GDP was made available for immediate health expenditure. So very little was done. And that's, of course, in the context of a policy intervention, whose the only rationale of which is to use or to buy time to expand the medical infrastructure. And my understanding of this is that I really don't think that the Modi regime ever intended to make use of the window of opportunity, as you call it, to do anything substantial about medical infrastructure. I think instead that the intention was to create a spectacle and a spectacle of a particular kind, a spectacle centered on the image of Narendra Modi as a strongman leader who's capable of swift, decisive action, and as someone who engages in such swift, decisive action in order to protect the population of the country. And that was also evident, I think, in terms of how the imposition of a lockdown centered so much in terms of the public narrative around it, the narrative that was peddled by the government as a kind of exhortation to Indian citizens to do their patriotic duty in response to a call from the nation's leader. So I think that politics really went into the heart of how the Modi regime responded to what was inevitably going to be a public health emergency. I think they worked hard to produce the spectacle of Modi as a strongman leader. 
And I think we can compare this in many ways to demonetization. If we go back to 2016, if we go back to the dramatic withdrawal of more than 80% of currency circulating in India's economy with the rationale that this would somehow combat corruption. You know, this was a sudden measure, completely unexpected. It wreaked havoc upon large parts of the country's informal economy and especially the rural economy. And one would have assumed, right, that this would result in political disaster for the regime that introduced this policy. It didn't. Even though suffering the adverse effects of this measure expressed support for it, you know, on the assumption that this was actually combating corruption and also then with reference to the fact that here's a leader who's actually doing something and doing something for us as other people. So again, spectacle with very little substantial, if you will, and effective politics underneath that to address the problems at hand, whether that's a public health disaster or whether it's corruption. And I think we need to recognize a more generic aspect here or a more generic dimension of this, which is, of course, that the idea of a strongman leader capable of swift action acting in direct relationship to a people that he or she protects is, in a sense, you know, the basic DNA of populist politics. On the one hand, the leader. On the other hand, people. That's directly more or less represented by the leader uh, existing in a relationship of mutual devotion. And there you have it. I would also point to one of the side effects, of course, of the Indian government not really doing its job here, which has been to create a space in which India's private medical sector can reap windfall profits by charging uh, relatively substantial amounts for testing, by having you know, covering much of the market, if you will, for treatment of COVID patients. And as we're seeing now, also gearing up to reap uh, handsome profits from vaccination programs. So it was a spectacle at a political level, and it was a spectacle that came with the added benefit for corporate India to reap additional windfall profits. Might also, you mentioned the, uh, the proliferation of the private health sector. It's no secret that India's public health sector is not in particularly great shape. The COVID challenge always going to be too much to handle for the Indian public health sector in its current condition. Well, that's, uh, that's a question that one often gets, and, and it's very often combined with reference to, let's say, India's population and so on and so forth. But so much of this is about how you choose to use your resources. Now, India has a disadvantage, which is that authorities in the country have been under-investing in public health care um, for as long as the country has existed as an independent nation. I mean, this is a country which is a middle-income country, but which nevertheless spends only around 1% of its GDP every year on public health care. This is why you have a private medical sector that basically caters to 74% of what you might call the healthcare market in the country. And it's also why poor people in India, of whom there are very, very many, are so susceptible to being pushed further into poverty or being pushed over the edge, if you will, if you're just above the level of being poor, being pushed over the edge into poverty due to a medical disaster or simply due to spending on medicines. But even in that situation, my argument is that there is a lot that could have been done. For example, by converting arenas, of which the country has many, 
into field hospitals in terms of uh, making sure that you have PPE available. I mean, India was exporting PPE abroad whilst the crisis was spreading, which is as close to being a scandal as anything could possibly be. We're talking about a country that is, you know, a pharmacy to the world, if you will. And uh, the fact that public requisitioning was not deployed or used in any substantial manner, all of these things testifies to the element of political will, even right when you have a disadvantage compared to other and poorer South Asian neighbors who have in fact invested more in your healthcare sector. So there's no getting around the fact that even with a poorly developed public medical infrastructure, India could have done far more to alleviate the disaster that the country is still actually undergoing. You've mentioned now in in passing quite a few times the impact of the the COVID situation on the economy and on the poor in particular. And preparing for this talk, I read one of your recent articles on the pandemic in India where you borrow the term social murder from Engels. And you go on to say that the way the Indian economy has been organized and as it exists today, it in fact functions as a machinery for social murder and that this is something that the COVID-19 pandemic has made clear for all of us to see. And this is, of course, a pretty strong vocabulary, social murder, quite a, a strong term. So could you explain in more detail what you mean when you invoke this idea of social murder and how the pandemic has, in a sense, made that uh, visible? So the immediate reference point for my argument is, of course, what I've already mentioned, namely the mass exodus of migrant workers from India cities when the lockdown was announced. This was substantial. There were some 10 million people who took to the national highways in order to get home. And those 10 million people, again, belong to a larger migrant workforce, counting approximately 120 million people. Now, what lockdown did was to cause immediate and acute economic stress, given that economic life ground to a halt and jobs evaporated. People simply no longer had incomes. There was a shortage of food. There was a shortage of money. There was an absence of any substantial kind of relief for those who found themselves in this situation from the government. And there was also a great deal of punitive and humiliating treatment of desperate migrant workers trying to make it home. Close to a hundred, close to a thousand people died in the course of this exodus. Now, my point in the article that you looked at is that whereas the lockdown triggered this scenario, it did not cause it. And I think it's really important to distinguish between those two things. The cause of the disaster that unfolded, argue, is to be found in the structure of India's economy, where growth is basically fueled by the super exploitation of precarious workers in the informal sector. Now, India is famed for the fact or perhaps even infamous for the fact that 95% of the workforce build their livelihoods in the informal sector of the country's economy, an informal sector that's you know very closely integrated with what we call the formal sector. And in the informal sector, we know that work is characterized by low wages, by poor working conditions, by insecure employment, and by restricted access to social protection. And all of those things are basically what comes into play in the extreme, if you will, when the national lockdown is imposed. See these ways of organizing, if you will, work in India's economy, ways of organizing work that will never be able to produce anything other than highly precarious livelihoods. The fragility of all of that is amplified so much when those precarious jobs just disappear like that overnight. And that is what I designate as the economy being a machinery for social murder. And what that is an attempt to say is that simply that the Indian economy is incapable of adequately sustaining 
the subsistence and social reproduction of the working classes. We see this even at, you know, if you want to call it that, the best of times using quotation marks in the fact that India is a middle income country that performs much worse than its poorer South Asian neighbors when it comes to basic social development indicators, i.e. those indicators that tell us something about the kind of living standards and the kind of quality of life that people have. So ultimately what that means is that work is a way of simply getting by very often in poverty at best, you know, just a little bit above what say the World Bank and other international development institutions defines as poverty. That is what I mean by the Indian economy being a machinery for social murder. It is not an economy that's capable of sustaining subsistence and social reproduction. What it sustains instead is of course what has been referred to as a billionaire Raj, in which the top 10% of the country's population earns 55% of all income and holds 74% of all wealth. And it's that sort of perverse inequality, if you will, that was brought even further into the light by the crisis that took place for migrant workers, because it compares to the fact that the Indian corporate elite has massively increased their wealth during the COVID pandemic, right? So that sort of production of inequality and precarity that's always at play in India's economy really kicked into high gear during the months that the country was under lockdown. I think here we're on to something really interesting because you mentioned earlier that the lockdown could be seen as an act of much spectacle, much grandstanding, but relatively little action. And as you point to now, one could say that quite little has been done to alleviate the suffering of the nation's poor during these past 10 months. But there has been more decisive policy action in other domains. You've also written about, and other other scholars have noticed the same, how Modi has sought to accelerate the liberalization of the Indian economy, perhaps even using this COVID crisis as a window of opportunity for pushing further economic reforms with a reference to the, the urgent need for economic growth in a time of crisis. You mentioned already sort of the benefits that the private healthcare sector has managed to corner during this lockdown. Could you give us some further examples of how the Modi government has sought to use this pandemic as an opportunity for pushing further economic reforms in other domains? Well, I mean, this has happened in several fields in the Indian economy. We saw quite early on in the pandemic that, for example, uh, the Modi regime relaxed a lot of environmental legislation that for some time had been standing in the way of very lucrative mining projects, uh, mining projects that were to be pursued by Indian business actors that are known to be substantial supporters of Narendra Modi who have basically bankrolled the BJP's election campaigns twice over. But this tendency really came into play, of course, with the introduction in relatively short succession of each other of new agricultural laws and new labor laws. So in terms of the new farm laws, these were intended to advance a process of liberalization that has been underway in India since the country embarked upon economic reform in the early 1990s. And at the core of these new laws is, of course, the opening up of farming and the marketing of farm produce at multiple points. So production, sale, pricing, storage, all the rest of it. 
And I think what has been really central about this loss is, of course, the dissolution of the existing marketing system, something that's attracted substantial attention, which has produced protests, and which correctly, I believe, threatened to put Indian farmers, the vast, vast amount of whom are small and marginal farmers, at the mercy of corporate forces that it'll soon be well nigh impossible to negotiate with. So this is about creating more space in the country's agricultural sector for those business interests that are also known to be ardent supporters of the Modi regime in very substantial ways. Now, when it comes to labor laws, what happened there was, of course, that 44 laws were consolidated into four broad codes of laws that were intended, according to the prime minister, to further ease the job of doing business in India. If we look at laws in detail, they are likely to, to push a process that we have already seen at play in India's economy in the years that has been undergoing economic reform which is that informalization makes its way further into the formal sector. Now, obviously, with 95% of the population being in an informal sector that has very little by way of legal regulation, those who are already in, in that space will not be directly affected by these laws in any you know, very substantial way. But the formal sector will be weakened, right? And all of this appeals to the misguided idea that India's labor markets are somehow embedded in too much red tape. The case is obviously quite the opposite. The vast majority of Indian workers have no recourse to any kind of legal protection whatsoever. That's precisely why they scrambled on national highways to get back to a countryside, which is also actually in crisis already, try and find some kind of relief and some kind of subsistence. But what's happening here is then putting in place of a legal regime, which I think will, A, further push that process of informalizing the formal sector, for example, by opening up the possibility for using more contract labor, making it easier to hire and fire, and also, of course, in quite harsh constraints upon kind of collective action that trade unions can engage in. And this is then linked, if you will, to a kind of symbolic politics, which is the, the politics of the Modi regime basically portraying itself both to domestic capital and I think to international capital as being on their side, as being a regime that is truly invested in opening up India for business. And, and that's, of course, of concern because neither of these laws are what poor people in India need. If you look at the rural poor, if you look at small and marginal farmers, if you look at landless laborers, they need an entirely different set of policies, policies that would have to be profoundly radical, for example, in terms of how you handle land ownership in the Indian context, in terms of how Indian farmers relate to markets in very different ways than what the current laws impose. And when it comes to, to labor, obviously, what's really needed there is a concerted effort to make sure that work is sustainable that work is uh, protected by laws that enable people to live dignified lives, and not least, that a more extensive regime of social protection be put in place. And again, for a country that has risen through strong economic growth into the ranks of what we call middle-income countries in the world system, these are eminently feasible things to do. But one would need to have an entirely different orientation, if you will, of the political regime for these things to actually be carried out. Speaking of jobs, you mentioned, and we've spoken about this on quite a few occasions, the exodus of migrant workers from urban India because jobs, they just simply disappeared overnight uh, in the informal sector. What are the prospects of these kinds of jobs re-emerging? Are they coming back in the short to medium term? Well, what we have seen is, of course, people returning to the cities to try and, you know, recover what they had lost or if not to find a replacement for it. But 
reports so far seem to indicate that this is a process that's slow and that it's a process that's playing out on a really uneven playing field, uh, by which I mean that as long as you have a situation where you have an oversupply of relatively desperate migrant workers and an undersupply of jobs, that places employers in a very advantageous position. And obviously with the introduction of labor laws that also has the potential to advance the informalization of the formal sector, I think what we're going to be seeing is the crystallization of an even more asymmetrical job market than what you've had before. And when we're talking about asymmetrical job markets, to go back to my previous point, we then talk about job markets that do not deliver sustainable, reliable, and dignified livelihoods for the majority of the country's population. Again, that's the machinery of social murder, if you will, uh, having its internal workings greased by the impacts of this public health crisis and also by the inaction in certain key fields of the government and its actions in other fields. In the beginning of the interview, you pointed to to the qualities of authoritarian populism that you see in Modi and how these qualities have perhaps become even more visible during the pandemic. But this is not unique to India, I think. We've seen this elsewhere in the planet where people we would describe as either populist or authoritarian or perhaps uh, some combination of the two have sought to use the pandemic to enhance precisely their image as decisive and as uh, no-nonsense men of action, or perhaps uh, men of inaction in, in some cases. We could include, for example, Trump in the US, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, Putin in, in Russia. This had, some people would, would argue, led to more authoritarian ways of governing in, in quite a few countries. And this, of course, includes India, as, as you indicated earlier. And could you could turn to this point and elaborate a bit on how how you think we've seen proliferation of what we could call authoritarian populist ways of governing during the past 10 months. So I think it's important when we discuss the aspect of authoritarian politics and how that has sort of blended into the trajectory of of the COVID-19 pandemic in India to to remind ourselves that at the point in time when the pandemic first began to rear its ugly head globally, India was in the throes of one of the largest protest movements that the country had seen since Narendra Modi took power in 2014 and perhaps even, you know, before that, if you will. What I'm talking about is, of course, the uh, sweeping protests against anti-Muslim citizenship laws that took place across the country that involved hundreds of thousands of people and that constituted one of the first substantial challenges politically, socially, and so on, to the kind of policies that the Modi regime had been pursuing uh, since it first uh, came into power. Now, we look more closely at these protests. We'll recall that in late February, they met with um, politically instigated riot, by which I mean that Hindu nationalist activists orchestrated violent attacks upon uh, Muslim communities and Muslim neighborhoods in Northeast Delhi. And in the face of that, protests actually continued. So that says something about, if you will, uh, the resilience of popular opposition to these anti-Muslim citizenship laws. But in late March, things changed. The national lockdown was imposed and the regime used that as a legal pretext to uh, dissolve protests. Now, as protesters retreated 
from the streets of Delhi and elsewhere. The police, the Delhi police, which answers directly to Home Minister Amit Shah, who, uh, as uh, many people will know, is a, a central player in the BJP and uh, a substantial pillar of support for the Prime Minister, swung into action and began arresting people, more or less right, left and center. There was what you could call a comprehensive campaign of arrests that took place. And it took place under the cover of lockdown. The lockdown meant that these arrests could not even be protested on the streets. And the arrests in turn were linked to the construction of a particular narrative around the violent riots that I mentioned just a little while ago, uh, the violent riots in Northeast Delhi. So according to the Delhi police, these riots were actually instigated by activists who had been involved in the protest against anti-Muslim citizenship laws. And they were, they were organized by these activists in order to put India in a bad light internationally, specifically in connection with, well, I think by the time this uh, podcast comes out, we can refer to him as erstwhile President Trump to India. So you have then this narrative concocted by the police on the basis of very flimsy and in many cases obviously fabricated evidence that leading activists in the movement against anti-Muslim citizenship laws have been involved in orchestrating these riots. And significantly, these people have been arrested under very stringent provisions of the Indian Penal Code and under draconian anti-terror legislation. We have people who have been in jail now for months and months and months, and they seem to have no legal reprieve. Among them is someone like Umar Khalid, for example, who who has been a leading student activist for a long time and a significant voice of criticism against the Modi government. Now, none of this is new in the sense that if we look at the career of the Modi regime, it was very clear from within two years into Modi's first term that dissent was going to be a target of the government's policies. We saw this first when student activists at Jawaharlal Nehru University were arrested on charges of sedition in 2016. And that, in a sense, was the opening shot in a campaign that the Modi regime has waged against students, against academics, against journalists, against public intellectuals, against lawyers, against anyone who dares to challenge the regime. There's been harassment, there have been arrests, and we have also seen Hindu nationalist groups. So groups that belong, if you will, to the same ideological field, and some would say the same movement, as movement engaging in violence against critics of the regime. And I'm thinking in particular here of Gauri Lankesh, who was gunned down outside her home in Bangalore back in 2017. And all of this, all of this harassment, all of this consistent targeting of dissenters is a political practice that works to produce, if you will, that basic distinction or that is crucial to authoritarian populism, which is that on the one hand, you have the true people. And in the case of the authoritarian populism, rather of the Modi regime, you have true Indians. And then you have their enemies. And crucially, those enemies are very often enemies within or internal enemies. Anyone who dares to oppose or criticize, if you will, the national leader who's acting in the best interests of all true Indians. So in this way then, the dissenter has come to be produced, come to be portrayed alongside those who do not fit easily into the Hindu fold, so Muslims above all, but also Dalits, as constituting this sort of anti-national force that must be combated. And the existence of that anti-national force justifies the exercise of coercive, if you will, interventions in the public sphere. Now, all of that taken together has produced what I think is a crisis of India's 
constitutional and secular order. I say that because not only do we have a regime that regularly violates civil and political rights, that regularly breaks with principles of secularism, and that even goes so far as to inscribe uh, majoritarian religious sentiments and beliefs into law, such as with the anti-Muslim citizenship laws that were introduced in late 2019. We also know that all of this is linked to the workings of a political movement, the Hindu nationalist movement, that has been at work in India, shaping the political terrain, shaping civil society for close to a century. So what this means is, of course, that when we look at what's happened under the pandemic, we're looking at the tip of an iceberg, and we're looking at a situation which is arguably the most serious case of an authoritarian populist undermining democratic rule in the world today. I say that because the regime in India is qualitatively different from the outgoing regime, for example, in the US, which was a deeply incompetent regime. That's not the case in India. So what we're seeing here, I think, is, again, the accelerated workings of a substantial threat to constitutional democracy in what has been referred to as, you know, rightly as the world's largest democracy. I would like now, to, in conclusion, to link some of these discussions back to your own academic work. I mean, throughout your academic life, you've worked precisely on subaltern social movements and have been deeply engaged in thinking about how to enhance the capability of poor and marginal groups to challenge precisely the terms of their adverse incorporation to political and economic structures of power. At the current conjuncture, as you describe it, defined as it is by not only the rise of Modi, but also of the entrenchment of his form of authoritarian populism. What lies ahead in your analysis for oppositional social forces seeking to work within the Indian polity? A long, hard road would be the quick and easy answer to that. And I say that, of course, precisely because of what you refer to, which is the entrenchment of the Modi regime and its politics. We're looking at a regime that's managed to consolidate behind it a very substantial share of the Hindu vote, a regime that has managed to extend its social support way beyond its sort of original constituency, which was the upper caste and the middle classes. And it's also a regime that has not been fundamentally destabilized by political protests since his first came to power in 2014. What I mean by that is not that there's been an absence of political protests. We saw early on in the Modi years, in 2016, for example, the rise of new forms of Dalit radicalism and Dalit Bahujan radicalism. And that was, which was a sign of hope, if you will, that there were forms of subordinate resistance to this regime. We also saw farmers' protests, large-scale, in 2018, which were coeval with several losses for the BJP in state election campaigns. But look what happened in 2019. The party came back with a larger majority than it had even after its sweeping increase in 2014. And then we had the protests against the anti-Muslim citizenship legislation in 2019 going over into 2020. And there we saw you know, how efficiently coercion could be mobilized to crush those protests. So if that long, hard road is to be, if you will, covered at all, it has to revolve, I think, around forging what are arguably new kinds of alliances and new kinds of solidarity in the Indian context between what you might refer to as the working poor. When I use that term, I'm referring to agricultural workers, I'm referring to small and marginal farmers, and I'm also referring to the urban poor, so largely than informal sector workers in the cities, on the one hand, and subaltern citizens, that is, those who find their rights as Indian citizens 
as citizens of a secular democracy eroded by Hindu nationalism. And here I'm talking about Muslims first and foremost, but also, again, Dalits and lower caste groups who may not find that easily a space in the Hindu nation that the Modi regime is trying to construct. I also insist on the importance of that kind of solidarity, if you will, solidarity between those who are at the receiving end of economic deprivation and those who are at the receiving end of a loss of rights, democratic rights, precisely because of the nature of the Modi regime, the nature of the beast they're up against. It's a regime that works to concentrate income and wealth in the hands of this billionaire class. And it's also a regime that seeks to make India into a country that is not going to be able to be a home, if you will, for those who do not fit the Hindu fold. So what's necessary here then, I think, is to think in terms of a joint struggle against capitalist exploitation and for recognition, for secularism, for social rights. Very often those struggles are pursued separately. And there's this false idea that struggles for redistribution and recognition, if we want to use that sort of those two simple boxes, cannot be fused, that there's a difference between class struggles and identity struggles and all the rest of it. And I think those beliefs are fundamentally debilitating, especially in a moment of crunch time as it really is now, because we are seeing the coming into being of a nation that's profoundly unequal and that's also profoundly majoritarian. And that's not a nation that really holds much of a future for those who are unable, if you will, to benefit from that kind of a formation. Elf Nelson, thank you for joining us today. I'm afraid that's all we had time for in this podcast. My name is Kenneth Bonelson. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.